don't judge me yet. Don't don't judge me yet. Um, before, what'd you say? You like it? I do too, kind of soft and silky too. But anyway, <clears throat> my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff, at Church on the Trail. I want to welcome y'all here this morning. If this is your first time, we want to give you a super big welcome. And <clears throat> Elliot and Katie Long are standing here, and they've got. I do this every week, little welcome kit that gives you, kind of tells you, informs you of the DNA of our church and kind of <clears throat> goes through our, uh, our sort of our essentials, um, the things that we place essential to, uh, uh, to Christendom, and it gives you kind of what, what our values are and kind of goes through some of the ministries in the church. And so if it's your first time here or if you've never gotten one of those and looked through it, you know, if you'd raise your hand, they'll get one in your hand. And before we get started, I want to make one more announcement. Richard alluded to it at the beginning, but this Thursday, we have got uh, the first gathering of the year uh, for the Grove, for our women's ministry, for all the women in the church, everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're in the, the Bloom mentoring kind of uh, program. I hate to use the word program, but those that, that ministry, it doesn't matter. This is for all the women in the church. We, we're we're going to we, we really want you to invite a friend because we this is for, for women all over Columbus. It doesn't matter what church they go to, so invite a friend whether they're part of our church family or not. There's going to be, the subject is prayer, and there's going to be an extremely powerful testimony by one of the ladies in our church of the power of, of prayer and what God does when we're on our knees uh, in surrender to Him and praying to Him. So we encourage you women all to be here on Thursday night. Um, so we are in a in a new uh, message series starting today for several weeks called Not a Fan. The name of it is Not a Fan. And I'm going to give you a little disclaimer, and that disclaimer is that it probably um, is probably going to get a little uncomfortable maybe. Um, I think they really might get uncomfortable, but I know that we are not called as believers we're not called to be comfortable. I, I, I know that I'm not called as a shepherd, as a pastor, to be comfortable or to, to make y'all feel comfortable. That's not, really my, that's not really my job. That's not really my calling. That's not what the Lord seeks out shepherds to do. And I can tell you, in fact, for me personally, I've had some super uncomfortable moments in the last week or so. But here, here's the question for you. The question is this. Are you a follower of Jesus? For real, are you a follower? I got to ask myself the very same thing. Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a Christ follower? Of course I am. Did you not see this vest? It's got crosses all over it. I, you know, I must be. Look at what I got on underneath. Y'all, I got my Jesus shirt on underneath. How many of y'all got a Jesus shirt? I got like, oh, only three? Y'all are lying. Y'all are lying. I got like 20 of them. My son, my youngest son used to tell me when he was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, he's like, Daddy, all you wear is Jesus shirts and Georgia football shirts. Look, I got tons of them. I got these two bracelets on. I wear them all the time. They're Jesus bracelets. I got a Jesus fish on the back of my Jeep. How many of y'all got a Jesus fish on your car? That's an absolute lie. Some of y'all got a cross or you got a Jesus fish on your car or you got a, a window decal or something. I've got all of those things. I got all that stuff. So of course, I'm definitely a Jesus follower. Now notice what I'm not asking. I, I'm, I, 
the question is, are you a follower of Christ? I didn't say, do you go to church? I didn't ask, do you go to church? I didn't say, are your parents or your grandparents uh, Christians? I didn't say, did you raise your hand at the end of a sermon? I didn't say, did you, did you repeat a prayer after some preacher? I didn't say, do you own two or three Bibles? I didn't say, did you grow up going to VBS? You know, I didn't, I didn't say, is the ringtone on your phone some Hillsong tune? Or under religious views on your Facebook page, does it say Christ follower? I didn't ask any of that. And it's not that any of those things are problematic. It's not that my Jesus shirt is problematic. It's not. But I asked if you are a follower of Christ. And here is what I am not going to do for the next several weeks. I am not going to stand up here and try to sell to sell Jesus to you by just kind of giving you the most appealing parts of the story. The reality is in the Gospels is that when Jesus invited people to follow him, some did, of course, but most did not. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John is kind of where we're going to look. And in Matthew, in chapter 4, Peter and his brother are fishing. They're in the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, he said. And then verse 20 says, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then he said the same thing to, uh, to James and to John. And verse 22 says, immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. It cost them their business. They walked away from their business. They walked away from their father, the text says, immediately, and they followed him. So some... Absolutely, some folks signed up for that deal, for that Jesus deal. But a lot of folks, most, decided to walk away. Now, first and foremost, for all of us in this room, all of us to figure out kind of where we are, we have got to define the relationship. And you've got, yeah, I hope you have a worship guide. If you don't, raise your hand and we'll get you one. But this is one of those fill in the blanks. We got to define the relationship, and it is like this. It's like the young man, and if you're in here and you're married or you're engaged, you'll know what I'm talking about. Young man's dating a young woman. There's going to come a time when they've got to have the sit down and define the relationship conversation. And that's the conversation that lays out the level of commitment that exists. You're really trying to figure out if what you got is really real. And by the way, for most men included, that's a paralyzing conversation to have with your girlfriend or with your fiancé. That's the same kind of conversation that, uh, that all of us have to have at some point with Jesus. So I want you to imagine for a second, you walk into Midtown Coffee, and you, get, you sit down or you go up to the counter, you get a ham, egg, and cheese croissant and a raspberry mocha latte and if you're a man you're probably not getting a raspberry mocha latte but let's say that you do and you have a seat at one of the tables in there for a little bit of quiet time and and now imagine you're sitting there with your latte and your croissant and and Jesus walks in the door he walks in the door and he sits down next to you and now you realize that you hadn't said a blessing over the croissant that you just started eating, and oh my gosh, the Jesus walks in and sits down next to you, and you're thinking, 
I've got, I got to pray, and, I, and God is sitting next to me, and so this better be a good prayer. And so you close your eyes, and you say, We come before thee, O mighty fortress, our Lord, to thank you for the bountiful bounty that ye have so graciously bestowed upon us this morn. Lord, we pray that you would bless and the harvest and that you would bless the brothers and sisters in Christ that have so labored and toiled over this croissant. Amen. And then there's this silence, this awkward silence, y'all. And, and Jesus is sitting there and he's God and he knows how awkward that you're feeling. And, and he kind of looks at you and he says, Ed, by the way, that was a fine prayer. Not a lot of heart in it but that was a fine prayer. But he says, man, we got to define, we need to define our relationship. And he wants to know how we really feel about him. Deep inside, is he number one? Is the relationship an exclusive relationship? Or does other stuff kind of jump up and get in the way of it? He wants to find out what is your level of commitment? What's your level of commitment? And if you're sitting there in Midtown Coffee as one who's called yourself a Christian since you were 11 years old, or if it's only been three weeks, he is clearly defining the kind of relationship that he wants to have with you. He's putting it all up on top of the table sitting right next to that latte. He's not sugarcoating it. He's giving you the completely unedited version of the kind of relationship that he wants to have with you. It is straight from his mouth to your ears of what it's going to look like to follow him. Now, if that's kind of the backdrop, it may be a little more of a challenge to answer the question I asked you a little while ago, are you a follower of Christ? And I would guess for many, many people that a more appropriate term Y'all may be fans. They're not a follower of Jesus. They're a fan of Jesus. Now, the definition of a fan is an enthusiastic admirer, usually of a sport or of some pastime or of a celebrity person. It is a guy like one of these guys. A guy like one of these guys. He stands or sits in the stands and he cheers for his team and he's got a signed Brett Favre or, or Aaron Rodgers jersey is hanging on the wall like in his office he's got the cheese head car detail you know on the back of his car decal on the back of his car but he's never been in the game he never breaks a sweat he never takes a hard hit y'all on the three-yard line he knows all about Brett Favre he knows all about Aaron Rodgers he knows all of their stats he can tell you story after story about when Favre did this or when Aaron Rodgers did that. And all they're good stories. They're written down stories. We can read the stories and they're true stories. They're good stories and he knows all about them, but he does not know Brett Favre. He does not know Aaron Rodgers. Never met him, much less had a cup of coffee with him at Midtown Coffee. But he yells and he cheers, but there's nothing that's really required of him. There is no sacrifice that he's got to make. He has no skin in the game. These folks, those folks, are enthusiastic admirers. And y'all, I believe today that Jesus has a ton of fans. 
folks who are rah, 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 love Jesus when times are good and they feel comfortable, but who flee when a difficult season shows up. Fans who got 50-yard line seats and they're cheering like crazy, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and the pain of the field. Jesus fans who know all about him, they know all about him, but they don't know him. And I am pretty sure that Jesus has no interest whatsoever in building a, 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 a team of fans. No interest in building a team of fans. I don't think that that is anywhere, anywhere on his radar. When he defines the relationship, enthusiastic admirer is not in that definition. And I'm going to tell you what looks to be happening all across America is that our sanctuaries have morphed into stadiums where fans can walk in the door and just cheer Jesus on, but they have no real interest in following him. They want to be close enough to him to somehow feel good about themselves, but not so close, y'all, that it may require anything of them. And people use all kinds of different yardsticks to measure their relationship. But really, though, they're really just justifying their behavior. Like if I had this mindset. That, that the lion is hungry and the lion is chasing me and Richard and I just got to run a little faster than Richard, right? And I'll be okay. If I can just run a little faster than Richard, I'll live. They're grading their relationship, including their relationship with Christ on a curve. It's like, hey man, I'm more spiritual than him or her or him or her and so that I'm okay. And if the truth is, if that's you, it is really a self-indictment more than anything. Or their yardstick may very well be in keeping the religious rules and the rituals and their traditions. Maybe those are the things that are the real evidences of being a follower. Would a fan go to church every Sunday? Y'all, would a fan put their hard-earned money in the bucket when the bucket goes around? Would a fan volunteer in the nursery Sunday after Sunday? Would a fan volunteer in the kids' area? Would a fan only listen to 107.7 The Truth? or the Joy FM, or would a fan only go see G-rated movies? Would a fan do all of that? Of course I'm a follower. I ain't doing all that stuff for nothing. Another yardstick that we may be using is our family tree, or maybe our Bible knowledge, or what uh, denomination we're part of or not part of, but none of those things, none of any of that handles the question. Y'all, the question is this. How does Jesus define what it means to follow him? Not how we do. How does he define what it means to follow him? And that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. Whatever definition he uses to define the relationship is a definition that we ought to use. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. That's your 15-minute introduction. Now, let's look 14 minutes and 59 seconds. That's your 15-minute introduction. So the Gospels give us some insight into this whole issue this issue of fan versus follower. And I don't want you to mistake this, that fan equals evil. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But, but I want us to look at fan versus follower. Let's look into the accounts of Christ's life that are recorded in the Scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is really what we have to look at. And they give us examples 
of Jesus having these relationship-defining conversations with folks, fan or follower conversations. And some of those encounters that he have that he has, they reveal. <clears throat> let me think of they reveal fanness. Some of them reveal fanness, and some of them reveal uh, followerness. And I know that's those aren't words, but just roll with me. Some reveal fanness. Some reveal followerness. Um, many of them, these conversations, reveal the symptoms of being a fan, as well as what it looks like, y'all, to be a follower. Lots of people, lots of people, make the, the, they mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. Don't make that mistake, y'all. People mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with him. Fans tend to assume that their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith, that their good intentions make up for their lazy faith. At the end of John chapter 2, verse 23, here's what we read. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So I think it's safe to assume there's a connection with the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and that a man named Nicodemus was one of those people that saw the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus was doing at the end of chapter 2. So verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This guy was a Pharisee, the most strict, the most conservative, the most traditional sect in the Judaism of the day. And not only that, he was a member of the council. He was, it says that he was a ruler of the Jews, that he was a member of the council. What's the council? The council is the Sanhedrin. What's the Sanhedrin? It's the 70 most influential, most powerful Jews in all of Israel, Jewish men in all of Israel. Nicodemus was one of those 70. Nicodemus was, was he was the cream of the crop, y'all. And so he was there at the end of chapter 2, and he saw the signs and the miracles and the wonders that Jesus had done. And he didn't see just the power in the signs. He saw the love and the compassion in those signs. And maybe now Nicodemus was a little ready, beginning maybe to be ready to up his game a little bit. Maybe take a relation, begin a kind of a relationship with Christ. He knew, though, that it would not come without a cost. If he went public, right, this is a Jew of Jews now, understand that, a member of the Sanhedrin. It would surely cost him something. Probably it would cost him power. Probably it would cost him position. Probably it would cost him in his reputation. But being a secret admirer, being an enthusiastic maybe even admirer, cost him nothing. But he knew becoming a follower would have a high price tag. It always, there's always a price tag on it. Being a follower, hear this now, being a follower at some point is going to cost you something. Look up on the screen. This is my friend, my Jesus follower friend, Cameron Arnett. During the 1980s and 90s, however many years ago that was, his acting career in Hollywood was flourishing, and it really was. He was in Star Trek, The Next Generation. He was in, um, he was in Miami Vice. He was in a few other movies and TV shows. He was in Doogie Howser. How many of y'all remember Doogie Howser? Say Doogie. One, two, three. Doogie. He was in Doogie Howser. And here's what Cameron said. He said, I was in California and things were going well. 
And then he auditioned for a role in a movie, and he was offered the part in that movie. Right before signing the contract for that part, though, he was told that he would have to do partial nudity in that movie that, that, he, was, uh, that he was being offered the contract for. And he told him no. They even offered to do a, use a body double, and he said no. He's not going to do it. And here's what, what he said. He said, Hollywood told me that in order for you to be an actor, you have to do partial body nudity, and I had to choose career or Christ. He said, I chose Christ, but when I did, I lost everything. He said, all hell broke loose. I lost everything. Agents left. Everybody left. Friends left. He said, I was left behind by the world and by everything that I had to include a bankruptcy. He moves back to Atlanta, and if you look at his filmography, there's like a 10 year gap in it and you know for five years he slept on the couch in a church office so there is a cost there is a cost at some point now the Lord has honored him in the last few years he's kind of had all the work that he can handle and in Overcomer if you saw the movie Overcomer he kind of stole the show they didn't even realize that was going to happen but he kind of stole the show so jump back to John chapter 3 Nicodemus knew y'all he knew that going public would not be pain-free. Verse 2 says, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus. He was searching for something. He sought Jesus out. Are you, as we sit here today, are you looking for something? Something to fill some empty thing in your life? Nicodemus was, and the text said that he came at night. Well, why did he come at night? He's a big shot, man. He's one of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. He could talk to anybody anytime he wanted to. He could snap his fingers and people would come and talk to him. Why did he come at night? Y'all, he came at night so nobody would see him. That's why he came at night. He could begin this relationship without making any real changes. He could keep it from affecting his job. He could keep it from affecting his friends. His friends and family wouldn't even have to know that it was taking place. And so he could talk to Jesus at night, and quietly make a decision, a heart decision, to believe in him. And that way, it wouldn't mess with his comfortable life. Sounds like a lot of fans that I know. Don't want their comfort level being messed with. Fans are happy to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't require any significant changes in their comfortable life. And man, I'm telling you, Jesus is fixing to lay some heavy truths on Nicodemus. He's going to lay some heavy truths on me and you. There is no way, y'all, there is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering in your life. It is going to cost you something. For Nicodemus, it's going to cost potentially power, position, income, family, livelihood, friends. Dude, I can relate to that. And so here's a question for you. Has Jesus cost you anything? If you call yourself and you consider yourself a Christ follower, on that worship guide right now, write down what he's cost you. Write down how he's interfered in your life. Now the truth is that maybe most of us, we don't mind some minor tweaks here and there. But he wants to turn your life upside down. We, we're okay with adding a little crown mold in here and a little chair rail there and maybe putting a fresh coat of paint on, but he wants an extreme home makeover. Look back at verse 2 again. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus seems to have come to a point of belief. He acknowledges that Jesus has come from God and that God is with him. But where would he go from, from there? No sooner did Nicodemus get this out that Jesus just jumps in and he, he rocks his whole world. With one stroke, Jesus changes this discussion of his identity to one of our eternal destiny. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, which really means born from above, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot ever, no matter what, see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was like, what in the world are you talking about? He said, I can stand here and recite verbatim every word of the first five books of the Bible. I can do it all straight out of memory. He said, have you seen my religious resume? Dude, he really has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Not a clue. But Jesus' words are unmistakable. No one, not the run-of-the-mill Jews, not the super-Jew Pharisees or the Sadducees, not the president, not the speaker of the house, don't care about who your mom and daddy is, no one, nobody who is relying on their own merits, nobody that's relying on their own merits will ever see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And I have no doubt that, that, that that's not a smart aleck response from Nicodemus. He really doesn't understand. And so you can almost see Jesus put his arm around Nicodemus and just like say, let's take a walk and let me explain this to you. And he spends the next several verses explaining all of that to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus had made a decision about Jesus. He believed who he was. The text says it. But that's not the same as following him. Jesus would not accept a relationship with Nicodemus where he only simply believed. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to follow him. Nicodemus needed to, to not just show up when the sun went down. Jesus wanted him when the light of day too. So let me ask you all this question. Have you made a decision for Jesus or have you committed to him? There's a difference. There shouldn't be a difference, but there is a difference. And a lot of folks have decided to believe in Jesus without making a commitment to follow him. I had somebody say to me about 18 months ago, somehow we got into this, this conversation about salvation or whatever, and this person actually said to me, because I asked them if they believed, and they said, oh yeah, absolutely I believe in Jesus, but I'm not quite ready to make him the Lord of my life. I'm not quite ready to give up my Saturday nights. But I believe, but, oh yeah, I, be I believe in him. The gospel does not allow for that distinction, y'all. It doesn't. Let me say that again. The gospel does not allow for that distinction. There's not a distinction between believe and commit. And many fans have raised their hand at the end of a sermon and they made a decision to believe, but they've never committed to following him. Jesus never offers that as an option. He's looking for more than just words of belief. When we decide to believe in him without making a commitment to follow him, we're just being fans. 
and you and I tend to define belief as just accepting that something is true, y'all, but biblical belief is more than just intellectual acceptance. It is a commitment to follow, and following by definition is more than just mental assent. It demands movement. Y'all, one of the reasons that churches in America are churning out fan after fan after fan is because they separate the message of to believe from the message of to follow. And when they're separated from each other, they get out of whack. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at the accounts, the only recorded accounts that we have of Christ's life, you find that Jesus says, believe in me four times. Four times. You know how many times he says, follow me? Somebody guess. How many times he say, follow me? Twenty. Twenty times he says, follow me. Now, I am not saying, so don't walk out here and say that I'm saying that it's not about belief. Of course it's about belief. It's also about follow. I'm not saying that follow trumps belief. What I'm saying is that the two are tied together. They're inextricably linked. You can't separate them. One can't live without the other. If you separate the message of follow from the message of believe, you lose the belief. Belief dies. And we are not going to be a church full of fans that separate believe and follow. We're going to be a body of believers that understands that together the two are the heart and the lungs of faith. That following is part of believing, and to truly believe is to follow. We've got to keep those two things in balance. And I want to be honest and transparent with y'all, flat out, for the last year and a half. I hope and I pray that I have not failed in conveying that right. Because I'm so passionate about seeing the lost come to Christ. And I hope that I haven't, like, put to the curb the message of follow. Because the message of believe is so important. But the reality is that they go together. They're, they're, they're tied together. They're chained together. They're hooked together. Y'all, it's not like big believe and little follow. It's big believe and big follow. They, they, and so if I've done that, then I'm, I truly, truly, truly am sorry. And maybe that's your story. Maybe when you heard the gospel, at some point in your life, somebody talked at great length and great passion about you making a decision to believe but they didn't say much about the fact that this commitment would necessarily change the way you live. In other words, they sold Jesus to you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to do it. Salespeople tell you all the good stuff, and they minimize or they don't tell you the stuff that may seem less appealing. Churches and pastors can be very reluctant. Or they may even completely avoid putting commitment on the marquee for fear that it's going to hurt the numbers. It's a false gospel, and I ain't going to do it. I'm not. Our mission statement at Church on the Trail is helping people find their way back to God and grow. Helping people find their way back to God and grow. That is what we do. That is our mission. And that growth and that discipleship is not going to happen without the message of believe and the message of follow being tied together. So Jesus doesn't hold back with Nicodemus. Following Jesus would require a commitment that's going to cost Nicodemus something. We see it all over the Bible, y'all. Moses couldn't, wouldn't, couldn't and wouldn't follow God until he had to stand in front of Pharaoh. Noah couldn't follow God without being called a nutbag for building a big boat in the middle of a drought. 
In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't follow God without being thrown into a fiery furnace. Following Jesus is not something that you can just do at night when nobody is going to see it. It requires a 24-hour day commitment that absolutely will, at some level, is going to interfere with your comfort level. And you may have heard some pastor at some point give you this sham wow gospel presentation. How many of y'all remember sham wow? This infomercial gospel presentation. And it, and it probably went or sounded something like this. How would you like to live forever? Would you like to have your sins forgiven and, and, and have a fresh new start? Are you ready are, are, are you ready to spend eternity? Do you want to spend eternity in paradise? You know, how would you like to live a prosperous life? How would you like to claim the health and the wealth that God has in store for you? Does that sound like something you'd be interested in? And it can be, all be yours for the low, low cost of zero. And if you order today, we'll include shipping and handling. And if you order in the next 15 minutes, we'll even double your order for free. Now, you may, you may have changed the channel, but a lot of people signed up for that gospel, that false gospel. They ordered a gospel that cost them nothing and provided them with health and wealth and financial prosperity. It's just not true. So in case somebody left it out or forgot to maybe mention it when they explained what it meant to be a Christian, I want you to hear this, and these are the four takeaways for today. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There's no forgiveness without repentance. There is no salvation without surrender. There is no life without death, and there is no believing without committing. No forgiveness without repentance. No salvation without surrender. No life without death, and there is no believing without committing. When Jesus defines the relationship, he makes it clear, and we're going to talk next week a lot about how he defines that relationship, but he makes it clear that being a fan who believes without making any real commitment is not an option. And we leave, so we leave Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We're kind of left not knowing maybe what he did. And you may even feel like he walks away and he, and he remains a secret admirer. But then he shows up again in John chapter 7. And among other things, in John chapter 7, the religious leaders, the, the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are fired up mad and they're trying to figure out a way to silence Jesus. And they even tell Jesus that he, uh, that he has a demon. And then Nicodemus shows up in the crowd where everybody's watching now. So remember, you got this crowd and you got Nicodemus who's one of 70 members of the Sanhedrin and they're all there. And Nicodemus believes now that Jesus is from God. What's he going to do? Is he going to do nothing? Is he going to stay quiet? Is he going to step up to the plate? What's he going to do? Would his belief move into some sort of a commitment? Because y'all, being a follower is a process, right? Being a believer, being saved is a moment in time. You are justified and made right before God's eyes. It's, it, it happens in a moment. You go from being lost to being found. A follower can be a process over time. And so what's Nicodemus at this point, what's he going to do? And I'm sure he's sitting there thinking like, what's it going to cost me if I go public with this? John 7.50 says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, 
So John's reminding us here of what happened in chapter 3. And who was one of them, who's one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So he goes from being secret admirer to publicly speaking, even if it's just a little bit, on behalf of Jesus. And it's for sure, it's not a, a, a full-fledged defense, but it's a step. And for Nicodemus, it's a pretty big step towards Christ. Now he allows, y'all hear this, he allows what he believes to interfere with his work, to interfere with some of his relationships, to interfere with his livelihood. In that moment, he stops being a fan and he begins the journey of being a follower. Verse 52 says, they, the religious leaders, replied, are you from Galilee too? Total sarcasm, y'all. Trying to embarrass Nicodemus for having anything to do with Jesus, having anything to do with anybody from Galilee, because nothing good in that day, they thought, could ever come from Galilee. It's out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere. No prophet would, could ever come from Galilee. So it was a big fat poke at Nicodemus trying to get him to back off. And here's what I'm telling you, in every believer's life, there is always, almost always, a moment like this where we have got to decide fan or follower. And if Nicodemus had any hope that following Jesus would be cost-free, it went out the window with the words, dude, are you from Galilee too? And then Nicodemus shows up in John 19. Jesus is crucified. Joseph of Arimathea, who also was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70, he had gotten permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body and prepare him for burial. And Nicodemus is there to help. And ironically, in a real twist of irony, the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years, they were nowhere to be found, right? But these two, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, the effect the crucifixion had on them was the exact opposite. Verse 39 of John 19. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, John reminds us again of John chapter 3, that Jesus had come by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. $100,000 is the estimate of what 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe would have cost in today's dollars. But make no, make no mistake, those two men, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, it cost them way more than money. If his status as a secret admirer began to wane in John 7, it was out the door when this happened. This movement from fan to follower is in full gear. That their relationship had moved past just words of belief spoken in the dark of night. He was no longer a secret admirer. He was no longer an enthusiastic admirer. It seems that he had become a follower. And he's not mentioned again in all the Bible. He's mentioned in John 3, John 7, John 19. But Christian history, Christian tradition, church history, says that Nicodemus died a martyr for Christ sometime later in the first century. So I want to remind you all, in light of this, the takeaways. Because they're so um, integrally, if that's the word, tied to the gospel. They're so part of the gospel. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There's not. Then there is no salvation without surrender. And there is no life without death. And there is no believing without commitment. So let today be the day that you believe.
believe and that you commit. That you believe and you commit. And the, and the, the idea that there is no life without death, it's, it's Christ's death on that cross. It's, that is what brings life. Y'all, that's what brings life. And it's crazy and it makes no sense that through death we have life. I get that, that it doesn't make any sense. But it is the truth. It is the truth. And so I'm, I'm asking you today, if you have never, if you have never believed and you've never committed, let today be the day. And and it, it's got to begin with repentance. And there, because there cannot be forgiveness without repentance. And all that is is a turn from your sin. Not you turn and you're perfect. Please don't hear me say that. I would never say that. We, but it's a turn away from my sin. And then it's a belief. It's in, what's it, It's a belief that Jesus died on that cross and it took care of my sins forever. And, and it, if that, and I said a little while ago, maybe you said a, a, a prayer after a preacher at some point. I don't want you to hear that the prayer, that, that there's something wrong with that. There's not something wrong with that. Unless it's just words that don't mean anything. Unless it just was just words to you. There is something to be said with getting these words out when they're meaningful. Okay? When they really, when they express the truths behind that. So I am going to ask you to, if that is you today, I want everybody to close their eyes, bow your heads. And I want you to understand that it's not the words that save you. It's Christ that saves you. It's not the words. It's the cross. It's Christ's sacrifice on that cross. But I do want to say the words, and here they are. Lord, let t- 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 today is the day that I invite you into my heart, into my life, to save me. I am a sinner. And I know that your death on that cross took care of that sin. Lord, I do repent of that sin. And I do believe and I do confess with my mouth that I'm a sinner and I need you and I want you to save me. And I want to commit the rest of my life to following you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. So if that was you today, if that was you today, look, man, there's a... There's one of these cards, and there's a place on that card for you to check that that happened to you today. Again, not so we can tackle you in the parking lot, but so that our prayer team can pray for you, that you can talk to us, because it's a big deal. It's a huge deal, and we want to pray with you, and we want to talk to you about it. And so, is Richard up here? There you go. I do want to say one last thing. I don't want you to misconstrue this message. And I know it probably, it's uncomfortable for me. And it may very well be very uncomfortable for you to hear. I don't want you to hear this. And I want you to come back next week because this is kind of what next week's message is about. I don't want you to hear that it's about doing. I don't want you to hear that. It's not about doing to the exclusion of belief. I want you to take this away. Belief and follow cannot be separated. If I believe, then I will be following. And if I am truly following, then I'm believing. Does that make sense? You said amen. Somebody else say amen.
That's the truth. 